Good morning. It's good to see all of you out here today. Uh, If you're new with us at Bethel, if today is your first time visiting with us and you don't know me, my name is Tyler Miller. I'm the associate pastor here, and I am so thankful to be a part of this church. Um, You know, we've we've already said it a few times today that we're a family here, and I've been here less than a year. My wife and son, we've all been here less than a year, and we feel that. We hope that if you're new here that you already feel that too. Um, And I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach God's Word today. It really is a privilege. And if you've been here with us the past couple of weeks, uh, you'll know that Alex and I are teaching a three-part series called Relational Christianity. We're working through John 17. And the main thought behind this series is this, that relationships are the very fabric of the Christian faith. So in every sermon, uh, we're expanding on this idea. In his first sermon... Alex focused on the relationship that exists within the Trinity. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they enjoy a mutual relationship of knowledge, love, and glory. And the wonderful truth for us is that because of what Jesus did for us, we're invited into that relationship by grace through faith in Christ. We can enjoy being known by God. The love that the Father has for the Son can be ours And if we're trusting Christ, we have the assurance that a day is coming when we will see the glory of Jesus in person and dwell with him forever. It's a great, uh, great message, great news for us. In his second sermon, Alex focused on the relationship that believers should have with each other. Um, So we are one, Alex said, he pointed out from the text, in faith. Together, we are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. We're united in that truth. We're also united in fruit. God is growing us in love and holiness. And we're also one in following. As we follow Christ, as we take up our cross and deny ourselves, we have a common mission to declare the gospel to the world. So in this sermon, this is the last one in the series, I want to consider that mission to the world and consider what our relationships should look like with those who don't know Jesus. So that said... Please turn with me in your Bibles to John 17. We'll be reading verses 6 to 23. If you're using the Pew Bible, uh, that's on page 903. And so as as you're turning there, please stand with me as I read the word to us this morning. So that's John 17, 6 to 23, and in the Pew Bible, it's on page 903. So starting in verse 6, Jesus, as he's praying for the disciples, he says... I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them." And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I give to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for doing so through the blood of your son, Jesus. God, thank you for calling us out of the world. Thank you for bringing us from darkness to light by grace through faith in your son. So God, I pray that you would be with us today. God, I pray that you would be with me as I unpack your word. I pray that you would um, speak through me. And God, I pray that you would open all of our hearts to hear this word today, to hear this news that we as believers are not of the world, but that we are in the world to declare the gospel to the world. So would you captivate us with that truth today? Would you help us to be so captivated by the gospel that we can't help sharing it with other people, with our community? So God, be with us to that end. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can have a seat. So as many of you know, we've had a few short-term uh, missionaries uh, go on mission trips this summer. So two went to Asia and one went to Europe. And we've even had some long-term missionaries here with us throughout the summer. So Neil and Cheryl Prentice are missionaries in Mexico. They've been with us. And Dwight and Miriam Singer, missionaries in Africa, they've been with us. And I'm sure that many of these people, these short-term and long-term missionaries, would tell you that when you travel to a country, a foreign country, for the first time, it can feel just that, foreign. So I remember going on a short-term mission trip years ago. Um, I went to Moldova. It's in Eastern Europe. It's a country near Romania. And feeling this, like one of the odd things that I remember being there is speaking to the people who speak a different language. So it was really strange for me trying to adjust to having a translator there. So I remember trying to speak to these people who don't understand English, and there's a translator with me, but I was tempted at first, and, and I did this for a while. I would speak to the translator instead of speaking to them. So I would say things like, tell them this, or ask them this, rather than just speaking directly to the people. It was really strange. Um, and I also remember uh, on the way back home from Moldova, we spent a few days in Rome, not necessarily for the purpose of a mission trip. It was more just to see Rome. Um, but the culture there was different too. Uh, one thing that stuck out was the price of Coke, believe it or not. It's crazy expensive over there. You wouldn't believe it. Um, but I also may or may not remember participating in a thrilling piggyback race down the streets uh, near the Colosseum, which I'm sure didn't uh, do very much to enhance the perception of Americans overseas. Uh, it wasn't one of my finest moments, um, but I wasn't alone in my foolery, in my foolery, mind you. Um, the person on my back was none other than our very own Whitney Miller. Uh, and Jeremy and Lindsay, who are with us today, they were there too. So uh, we were together in that. But 
in any case, uh, you can feel strange when you go to a foreign country, uh, if it's, uh, especially if it's the first time. You're not from there. You probably don't know the area very well or the language very well. The culture is different. Things that are part of your regular routine might not be a part of their regular routine. Things that are important to you might not be important to them. You're not from there. Like It's not your home. And so in the text today, one of the things that Jesus highlights is that we as Christians, we're not of the world. This isn't our home. But as we'll see, while we're not of the world, we are in the world to declare the gospel to the world. So let's look at that first point together. We are not of the world. Therefore, we should praise God for his grace and mercy. So in John's gospel, the word world is mentioned 78 times, 18 of which occur in this chapter, in chapter 17. As a point of comparison, world occurs, I think, nine times in Matthew, three times in Mark, and three times in Luke. So when something is repeated as often as world is repeated in John, I think it's most likely significant. Like, we should pay attention to that. And so one passage that I think is important for our understanding of John 17 here, it comes from John chapter 8, verses 21 to 24. You don't have to turn there. But there, Jesus, he's speaking to a group of people. It includes religious leaders at the time who are rejecting his message. And so Jesus says this from John 8, 21 to 24. I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, that's the Christ, the Messiah, sent from God, you will die in your sins. So Jesus, he's saying that he's not of the world. And he's indicating that he's leaving the world. This will happen when Jesus ascends into heaven after dying on the cross and being raised on the third day. But Jesus says the people to whom he is speaking in John 8, they are of the world. And his claim is a heavy one. His claim is that unless they believe that he's the Messiah, they're going to die in their sins. But in chapter 17, um, the, the claim is entirely different. Jesus is praying here for his true disciples. And in verses 6 to 10, he mentions a few important things about them that we'll look at. So let's look at verses 6 to 10. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So in verse 6, Jesus starts off by saying that God gave the disciples to him from the world. If we just stop and think about that fact alone, that is staggering. That's marvelous grace on display. The disciples were at one time part of the world. What we read in John 8, Jesus is speaking to people who are rejecting him. They're apart from him. They're of the world. That's where we all were. That's where the disciples were. Like They were part of the same group. But God, in his sovereign, loving design, chose to take them out of the world. He chose to give them to Jesus. That's the truth also mentioned in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 17 where we're at. 
So there, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. That means he's getting ready to die on the cross. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh, and then catch this, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So this is Jesus' mission. This is what Jesus is doing. He's calling people out of the world, and this is gracious, and we need to see it that way. So if, if you're here today, if you're a Christian, this truth applies to you. God in love has saved you. That's something that you couldn't do on your own. That's something that you didn't do on your own if you're a Christian. He brought you out of the world, and that's the kind of marvelous grace that deserves celebration. So rejoice in that today. And God accomplished this through Jesus. So Jesus says that he manifested and revealed the name of God. That's another way of referring to the character of God to the disciples. So he declared to them who God is. That's what Jesus has done. He gave them, the disciples, the very words that God gave him. That's what Jesus did while he was on earth. That's very significant because if that's true, if the words that Jesus spoke are really the words of God, and it is true, then it means that to obey Jesus is to obey God, and to reject Jesus is to reject God. But, as Jesus says, the disciples, they kept his word. They received God's word and they followed Jesus. They knew in truth that God sent him. They believed it. And Jesus was glorified in those few. So the world rejected Jesus. The world didn't believe that Jesus came from God. They were opposed to Christ. They didn't receive his words. But Jesus' true disciples, while they certainly weren't perfect, if you've read the Gospels, you know that the disciples weren't perfect, but they trusted him. They believed him. They followed him. And it's this group, Jesus' true disciples, that's the object of his prayer here. So he doesn't pray for the world, but he prays for those who followed him. And if you hear that, and if you think, man, like that sounds harsh, right? Like he's praying for the disciples, but he's not praying for the world. Why would he say that? Let's take a moment to consider what he is and what he isn't saying. So Jesus is praying for those who followed him. And as we'll see in a moment, he's praying that they'll be kept from Satan, that they'll continue to be unified so that the world may believe that God sent him. So in, in not praying for the world, Jesus isn't all of a sudden like closing off uh, divine revelation. He's not closing off the door of salvation by not praying for the world. That's not what he's doing. Because in fact, he's going to be praying later in this chapter for those who will believe in him. So he's not praying for the world though in the sense that he's not asking God to bless the world in its current state. Um, in his commentary on John, Leon Morris puts it like this. I really like this. He says, the world is to be reached through the disciples. And Jesus prays for his agents in this task. He could scarcely pray for the world as such, which would mean praying that the world might continue in its worldliness and its opposition to God. Prayer for the world could only be that it be converted and no longer be the world. So that's why Jesus isn't praying for the world. So again, if you're here today and if you're a Christian, rejoice that God has called you out of the world. He brought you from death to life through faith in Christ. And if you're here and if you are not a Christian, let me first say we are glad that you're here. We want you to feel welcome here. We want you to come back here. 
But if you're here and you're not a Christian, hear this. Heed Jesus' words here. Hear again what he says in John 8. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's a hard passage. But there's hope for you there if you're not in Christ. Believe in Jesus. Trust him to forgive you. Follow him. You'll have eternal life, which as verse 3 of this very chapter, chapter 17 says, is to know God and Jesus. Jesus is ready and willing to save you. Run to him. Run to him. Don't reject him. But as believers, we're not of the world, but we are in the world. So therefore, we should pursue holiness and trust Christ, our second point. So look with me at verses 11 to 16. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but, it, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, in verse 11, Jesus, he says that he's no longer in the world. So as he says in, in verse 1 of this chapter, his hour has come. Jesus is on a mission to go to the cross and die for sins. And so he's looking ahead to that moment when he'll die on the cross, when he'll be raised, when he'll ascend into heaven and no longer be here. But his disciples are in the world. They're not going with him. Not now, anyway. So Jesus prays at least three specific things, I think, in these verses. First, he asks God, who he refers to as the Holy Father here, to keep the disciples in his name, which God gave to him, so that they'll be one even as he and God are one. And so I, th I think what Jesus is asking for here is he's asking God to keep the disciples faithful to the message that they received. He's asking God to preserve the disciples He's asking them to grow them in holiness. And so Jesus adds that while he was with them, he did keep them in his name. Jesus didn't fail when he was with the disciples. And in case anybody's wondering that, with Judas, the son of destruction, Jesus explains that. Yes, Judas left and betrayed Christ, but Judas never was a true disciple. He proved that by what he did. But Jesus' prayer uh, is that God would preserve his true followers. Judas left because, or so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus didn't fail. He's praying for the true disciples here. And so, as Alex mentioned in the sermon last week, this is a key aspect of our unity. We trust in Jesus. We have a common faith. But we also are united in our fruit as we pursue holiness, as God grows uh, in us, as, as he grows us in Christ's likeness. We're united in that. We're united in that love, in that holiness. And this requirement for holiness, it's, it's not some attempt by God to try to make sure that we don't have any fun. 
You know, as Chris has said before, I've heard him say this and I like it. God is not a cosmic killjoy. God's the source of all happiness and satisfaction. Jesus wants us to have that joy. Jesus even says in verse 13 here in our chapter that he's speaking these things in the world so that his people, his disciples, would have his joy fulfilled in themselves. So pursuing joy in anything other than God, the true source of satisfaction, is, it's, it's as C.S. Lewis says, it's like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because, because he can't imagine what's, bent, what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God's not trying to limit our fun. In calling us to holiness, God is calling us to himself, the true source of satisfaction. He's calling us to the place where real joy is. He's not leading us from it. He's leading us to it. So pursue holiness. Find your joy in God. Seek him in his word. And pray for other believers. Pray that God would keep them faithful. Would you do that this week? Like, Think about this. Think about your home group, the people who are in your group. Write down their names this week. And commit this week to be praying for them. Be praying that God would grow them in holiness. That he would preserve them. Pray that God would make them more like Jesus this week. That they would abound in love and good deeds. And so the first thing, Jesus is asking the Holy Father to keep the disciples faithful. And second, while Jesus doesn't ask God to remove his disciples from the world, he does ask the Father to keep them from the evil one. So this is the second thing I think that he asked for. And, and I think he's praying this for at least two reasons. So one, because the world hates them. So in verse 14, Jesus reiterates the fact that he gave the disciples his word and that they're not of the world. And he says, the world hated them for it. He says the same thing in John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This isn't some kind of mere indifference. This is hatred. The disciples are charged to proclaim the gospel to the world. And as the gospel falls on unbelieving ears, many will be opposed to it. So for the disciples, as Jesus is preparing to leave, he knows that it's not going to be easy for them to stay behind. The opposition is real. But there's hope. I, I read in one commentary this week, um, I think it was Leon Morris again, reflecting on this high priestly prayer in John 17. And he made the comment that I thought was good. He said something like, we can at times be tempted to read John 17 as if it's some kind of, you know, solemn, somber prayer as Jesus is approaching the cross, almost like a prayer of defeat. Um, and his point is, that's not the case at all. Jesus is praying this prayer in victory. Jesus is looking ahead to his death and resurrection. This is a victorious prayer. It is solemn, but it's victorious. Uh, and, and so, in John 16, 33... Uh, looking ahead to watch the come for his disciples, Jesus says this. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's right before this prayer starts. Jesus has overcome the world. 
So in spite of all of the opposition we face, there's hope. This is a prayer of victory. So Jesus is praying for the disciples, I think, because the world hates them and also because Satan wants to devour them. Like, think about it. These, these men and women, these disciples here, these men, they're charged with carrying forward the gospel message. But that's the last thing that Satan wants to happen. He wants to and will do whatever he has to to keep the world in darkness. So he's going to oppose the message. Like Peter isn't messing around. In 1 Peter 5.8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's you. This is a sober message from Jesus, but it's a victorious one. Jesus has overcome the world, but we are in the world, and we need God's help to persevere because there will be opposition. The disciples needed that too. So pray not only for fellow believers here, for believers in your home group, but pray for Christians around the world, especially those enduring persecution and trial. Pray for those Christians in Iraq who are being persecuted by the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, or ISIS. Pray for the many other believers around the world who are suffering even now for their faith. Pray that God would deliver them, that they would know that nothing can separate them from the love of Christ, that they would endure to the very end. So the third thing that Jesus prays for, I think, leads us into our third overall point. So we're not of the world, but we are in the world. And thirdly, we've been sent to the world. So therefore, proclaim the gospel to all people. Let's look at verses 17 to 23. So Jesus says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So Jesus won. He asked God to keep the disciples in his name, to be faithful to the message that they received. Two, he asked God to keep his disciples from the evil one, to protect them in the world. And then now in verse 17 here, three, he asked the Father to sanctify the disciples in truth. And he says that um, your word is truth. So remember that the disciples, unlike the world, they received God's word as Jesus gave it to them. So Jesus is praying now that God would continue to sanctify or as we'll see, consecrate or set apart his disciples by his word. And so this act of sanctification, I think it not only refers to their growth and holiness in Christ's likeness, but also to their mission to the world. I think, I think they're intricately linked. So in John 10, 36, Jesus, he says that the Father consecrated or sanctified him and sent him into the world. So Jesus was set apart or sanctified, if you will, for this rescue mission to save sinners. That's John 10, 36. But us, the disciples, being united with Christ, Jesus is now sending us on that same mission to declare the gospel to the world. The disciples are set apart, sanctified 
for this task, just as Jesus was set apart and sent into the world. So it makes sense that in verses 18 and 19 uh, that Jesus would say, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, even unto death. He was set apart for this task. And he did this so that his disciples and us would come to know him in truth, follow him, and being set apart for the task, would proclaim the gospel to the world. It's a common mission that we share. Jesus set apart, sent into the world. Jesus' followers set apart, sent into the world. And I love D.A. Carson's reflections on this. In his commentary on John, he puts it like this. In John's gospel, such sanctification is always for mission. And he goes on to say, not only were they, the disciples, drawn from the world, but the prayer that they may be kept safe in the world and sanctified by the truth so as to engage in mission to the world is ample evidence that they are the continuing locus of John 3.16. So don't miss what he's trying to get at there. Uh, it's incredibly significant. So in John 3.16 and 17, the text says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This was Jesus' mission, to come to the world, to die for sinners, so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life, so that they would know God, so that they would be saved. That's John three sixteen and 17. Those are verses that we know and love. And now, what D.A. Carson is getting at, and I think what our text here is connecting, is we, as Jesus' disciples, are the continuing locus, as Carson puts it, of those verses. So we know and love John 3.16, Jesus sent to the world to die for sinners, so that those who believe in Jesus would be saved. Now us, we are sent into the world through Jesus to declare this message, this message to a lost and dying world. John 3.16, connected to us. So when you read those verses, when you teach them to your kids or your grandkids, when you rejoice that Jesus died for your sins, uh, celebrate that fact. But don't stop there. Instead, remind yourself that as a Christian, it's your mission as well now to declare that gospel to the world. So do, do you remember the main thought behind this series on relational Christianity? It's that relationships are the very fabric of the Christian faith. So in the two sermons before this, Alex explained how we as Christians have been brought into a loving relationship with God and with each other. But our relationships don't stop there. They shouldn't stop there. We also have a mission as a relational people to engage the world. This is the task that Jesus has charged us with. And so I think on a practical level, we can do this in a number of ways. So first, pray for each other. I know we've already mentioned it uh, in the sermon, but really be praying for each other here at Bethel. Pray that God would keep us faithful by the power of his spirit at work in us. You know, we celebrated a family dedication today with the Stella Bots, and Pastor Chris has called us to this task, to be praying for them, to walk alongside them as they shepherd Avery. 
This is something we not only need to do with family dedications, we need to do this in each other's lives all the time. We need each other. We weren't meant to do this alone. God didn't design it that way. Pray for each other. Pray that he would unite us further in love for him and others. Pray that he would be glorified in us as we proclaim the gospel to the world. So, pray for each other. But second, pray for those who don't know Jesus. Only God can save somebody out of the world. That's not something that we can do. But we can pray. We should pray. We should declare the gospel to the world. So let's pray hard. Let's pray hard that Jesus would save sinners. So if you haven't already done this, if this isn't a regular practice of yours, I have another challenge for you this week. Write down names of people you know who don't know Christ and pray for them. Take this week to pray for them. Continue to pray for them. These are people you work with. These are your neighbors. These might be people in your family. This might be the person who cuts your hair. This might be the person who serves you food at a restaurant you go to all the time. Like, these are people we interact with, we engage with on a daily basis. Pray for them. Pray that God would open their hearts to repent and believe the gospel. So third, live differently from the world. Don't conform to it. Uh, I read a good blog post this week. It was actually shared with me by Lori Chapman. It's um, by J.D. Greer. He's the lead pastor at the Summit Church in North Carolina. And he posted this um, message. He called it 26 ways to provoke the 1 Peter 3.15 question at work. So 1 Peter 3.15, it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's 1 Peter 3.15. And so what J.D. Greer is getting at is he's encouraging people, he's helping people form habits in the workplace that would provoke that question. So that would provoke, provoke others to say, why do you do that? Or maybe, why don't you do that? And, and I'll share with you some examples from this article. Um, and if you would like, um, feel free to let me know. Um, I can send you a link to the whole thing uh, later this week. So a couple of examples. He says, make it a daily priority to speak or write encouragement when someone does good work. Another, make every effort to avoid gossip in the office. Be a voice of thanksgiving, not complaining. Organize an exercise group before or after work. Go out of your way to talk to your janitors and cleaning people and others mostly overlooked. Put Christ on the table. When coworkers ask about what you did over the weekend, mention church instead of intentionally dancing around the topic. We do that sometimes, don't we? But he, like his encouragement is to put Christ on the table. And this is something, this doesn't just apply to, to you who have jobs in the workforce. This applies to moms. When you are taking your children to the park, talk to the other moms who are at the park. Get to know them. Like I'll make this point uh, in a second, but invest in other people. Invest in the people who are where you are. God has put them in your life, so share truth with them. And uh, one last thing that uh, 
uh, Greer mentions that I really like, or, or two last things. He says, learn to share the gospel briefly, as in less than 30 seconds, so that you can communicate in a conversation without hijacking it entirely. I like that because sometimes I think we feel pressure if we are with people who don't know Christ and if we actually have the opportunity to share the gospel, we go for it, which is a good thing, but sometimes we really go for it and we're talking for minutes and minutes and minutes and the other person's just looking around the room. They're not really engaged in what we're saying. Like that can happen. Um, And so that shouldn't discourage us from sharing the gospel message. We should share the gospel message. But I like this encouragement to know the gospel so well, to be gripped personally by the gospel so well that in 30 seconds you can communicate it in an engaging way to somebody over the table at work or across the desk at work. I think that's a good thing. And then lastly, instead of eating lunch alone, intentionally eat with others and learn their story. Evangelism is doing normal life with gospel intentionality. And so that, that leads me into the fourth, fourth point. So the first was pray for each other. Second, pray for those who don't know Jesus. Third, live differently from the world. Don't conform to it. And fourth, invite unbelievers into your life and invest in them. And so I think when Greer mentions this, when he says this, quote, evangelism is doing normal life with gospel intentionality, I think that's a nod to a book called Total Church. It's written by Tim Chester and Steve Timmis, and they use the phrase ordinary life with gospel intentionality to describe the whole of the Christian life. So they are talking about evangelism in that book, but not just evangelism. Um, But thinking of evangelism in that context, their point is that we should invite non-Christians into the normal routine of our life with gospel intentionality. So as an example, you're planning to eat sometime this week. Think, I think that we all are. So invite somebody to eat with you. So if you're going to work and if you have a lunch break, invite somebody to eat with you on your lunch break. If you're a family and you're planning to eat dinner, invite your neighbors to come over and eat dinner with you. Like their point in Total Church, and I, and I love it, it's, it's really, um, it really takes the pressure off. They're not saying, here's 10 other things that you have to do that you have to add to your already hectic schedule. They're saying, invite other people into the schedule that you already have in place. And so do this with the unbelievers that you know. Invite them in. And so again, like say that you're a stay-at-home mom and you go to the park. How can you do this? Well, you can go to the park and talk to the other moms uh, who have their kids there. I know that my wife likes to do that. When she's at the park, other women are there. It's great because sometimes James will come up and tackle their kids. And right there, you have an open conversation started. Uh, Yeah, he's getting older and uh, just loves to wrestle. Conversations just, the door just flies open. It's great. Um, So do that. Take advantage of those opportunities to speak with the people in your regular sphere of influence. And, And don't treat them as projects as you do this. Um, so what I mean by that is don't try to um, get to know someone. Don't invite them into your life in some kind of rigid, I just want to check this box off of my uh, to-do list today. Like, so I need to share the gospel with somebody, so I'm going to act interested in them, even though I'm really not, and I'm going to check off the box. That's not what I'm talking about. Like, don't do that. Invite them in. Really invest in them. Really share your life with them. Really show the love of Christ to them. And so finally, fifth, 
Share the gospel boldly. So when those opportunities come, don't shrink back. Trust God and tell others about the hope that's in you. You and I have a wonderful message to share. So I hope that you haven't missed this point. As we've been, as we've been preaching through John 17 and talking about relational Christianity, underneath all of this, and this is the point of Alex's first sermon, is the foundation that we've been called out of the world. Jesus was sent into the world to bear our shame, to die for us, so that we might have eternal life. He lived a perfect life where you and I have it. He died a sinner's death on the cross as a substitute for our sins, and God raised him from the dead three days later, approving of what he did, and Jesus later ascended into heaven where he now rules and reigns. That's the gospel message, and it's great news, and it's great news that we have the privilege of sharing with other people. So do that. Share it with other people. So let's take a step back here um, and consider uh, this, this series as a whole again. So the first sermon that Alex, Alex preached, it was about the relational God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit enjoy a mutual relationship, relationship of knowledge, love, and glory. And graciously, God the Father sent God, set God the Son apart for a mission to save sinners from the world and invite us into that relationship. Jesus' disciples are part of that group who have been saved from the world, and if you are in Christ today, so are you. Jesus here in John 17 is also praying for you. It's incredibly encouraging. In the second sermon, it was about our relationships with each other as believers. So in John 17, Jesus prays for the disciples and, again, future believers. And, God, and he asked God to make them one, to keep them unified in the truth. We share a common faith in Christ. We share a common growth in Christ's likeness. And we share a common following, as Alex said, as we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and share this gospel with the world. And then today, in this third sermon, we've seen how the end goal of this unity is that God would be glorified through the world coming to believe that God sent Jesus and that God loves his people. As God sent Christ into the world, so has God through Christ, sent you into the world so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. We have a great message to share. The love with which the Father loves the Son is ours. It's so wonderful. It's amazing. So let's share it. May that be so. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for sending Christ to die for sinners. God, I thank you for the gospel. God, I thank you that you have brought us out of the world, that you've made us your own, that you've brought us into relationship with you, that you've changed the way that we as Christians relate to each other, that we need each other, that we're unified in truth. And God, I pray that you would grip us um, with the task that lays before us to share the gospel with all people. God, I pray that you would help us to do this winsomely. God, help us to do this passionately to proclaim Christ to all peoples. So God, would you um, so grip us with the gospel that we can't help but share it with other people? Would you be glorified in this 
And would you save many out of the world? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.